Well, if you're new here tonight, um, we are going to the book of Exodus, and we are in Exodus chapter 9 tonight. And um, up to this point, Pharaoh's heart keeps getting hard and prideful. And uh, I think back in Exodus 5, 2, where he said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I, I don't know this Lord, L, capital L-O-R-D, the Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. Well, now we are in the fifth, sixth, and seventh plague here tonight. And God puts it to Pharaoh again, let them go or things are going to get a lot worse than they've been to this point. And he lets him know in, in Exodus 12 that he is going to judge each and every one of the gods of Egypt. Well, as we start this chapter, he has done this on occasion where he has given Pharaoh an opportunity in advance to understand what's coming and to just submit to God and relent with his attitude, and it doesn't need to happen. So I understand that these plagues were hardening Pharaoh's heart, but in reality, it should have been doing the opposite. Because really, each one of these plagues would soften the heart. It's like, wow, I just got spanked. I, I'm going to stop doing that. But yet, the opposite is what happened to Pharaoh because of his pride, because of his rebellious spirit. So, well, in chapter 9, verse 1 through 4 there, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him. So, haven't done it, plague number 5 yet. We just finished number 4, maybe a week, two weeks, a month early. We don't know how long of a time span. But thus says the Lord God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And if you refuse to let them go, and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, your horses, your donkeys, your camels, your oxen, your sheep, and it will be a very severe pestilence. So really up to this point, as bad as the pestilence or the plagues have been, they're not as bad as they're going to get. So this is a good time to not have number five come your way. But in verse four, the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. Nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. God started doing that uh, after the, the third plague, as you remember. Remember when they did that third plague and, and, the, and the magician said, we can't do this. This is the finger of God. Hmm. You know, we do see the finger of God and Daniel, tekel, tekel, meaning you farson. You've been weighing the balance. You've been come up wondering, wanting. We see the finger of, of Jesus drawing in the dirt. And the oldest to the youngest, the Pharisees that wanted to stone the woman, left. But more often than not, we, when you're talking about the power of God, it's the hand of God. And, and, and he lets him know, yeah, those guys just said the finger of God, but you're getting ready to see the hand of God. But he tells them up front, go tell him. Because in, in reality, this, he should be softened in his heart. Because you keep telling him 
I don't want to do this. You keep telling him. All you got to do is let him go. And, and yet he doesn't. But let's make it clear here. God is saying the opposite to what Pharaoh wants to believe. Look at that little phrase there where at the end of verse 1, let what? My people go, <laughs> that they may what? Serve me. <laughs> Pharaoh thought they were his people and they were in existence to serve him and his country, his kingdom. And God is saying, it's gone on too long. It's over. And you need to now allow God to be God and you to identify him as the true God. Now, you're not going to want to do that, Pharaoh. God told him in advance, but you will see it. Your people will see it. And all of Egypt will see it. And even to the ends of the earth, what I've done here in this time will be known. And we're going to see that there tonight. So the people don't belong to Pharaoh. They belong to God and, and they're, they're in existence to serve the Lord, not Pharaoh or this world. And he warned him again, this is going to be severe. Well, verse 5 through 7, So the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. Now, take a note of that. All the livestock of Egypt died. The, the reason I point that out is in the very next plague, they have more livestock. <laughs> okay? And so some say, well, it wasn't all of them. So the word here in this particular context, all didn't really mean all. It meant a lot. And that, that could be the case. Or it could be they just went and took Israel's. <laughs> or they went and bought some more for themselves. But they do have, I mean, you're not going to make it. It's like the power going out. If you don't have horses and mules and camels and cattle and sheep, you were basically homeless. I mean, you're in serious trouble because you relied on that every single day to survive. So they had to quickly get more of them if that's not the case. But it could just simply be that all in this case is, is just a, a lot of them. And, and, and it's sort of talking in hyperboles because it definitely happens in, in Exodus where um, the, the, the language itself is letting you know it's, it's, uh, it's extreme. And that's the reason they're using these hyperboles to say it was just a giant wipeout. But the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. And when Pharaoh heard this in verse 7, he sent, he inquired, oh, are you sure Israel's didn't die? They were right there across the fence from me. And, you know, all mine died. And you're saying none of theirs died? So he inquired of this. And indeed, indeed, he seems to be surprised. God's word is true. Not one of the livestock of Israel's died. But yet, Pharaoh, once again, this is the sixth time now, hardened his heart and didn't let the people go. This would be the pagan god Hathor, which is the form of a cow, the body of a man, but the head of a cow. It was a symbol of fertility. And somehow, 
This became very profound and particular to the Hebrews. Now, you've got to realize they had thousands of, of temples. They're, they're in Memphis, not Tennessee, but Egypt, Memphis, Egypt. Uh, even though most of it is, is destroyed to this day, but there was a time where they couldn't count the amount of temples that were there. There was clearly over a thousand. And, um, but yet, to the Hebrews, it seems that this one really stuck out. You say, why, why is that? Because remember, we're going to get to chapter 32. And what does Aaron do when Moses doesn't come back? He builds a what? A golden calf. And they all said, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. So it was something that, that, that was deep in them, profound to them, unfortunately, well, in verse 8 through 10, so the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take yourself handfuls of ash from the furnace. That would be really fine, black ash. I think we would call it maybe soot today, right? And, and let Moses scatter it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt, and it will cause boils that break out in the sores on Man, make note, plague number five of 10, finally, man is plagued. Before it was the animals, it wasn't man. But this time, men get the punishment upon their own skin, boils. How many of you guys have chicken pox? I, I remember... I was living in Texas at the time. We had a block, a long block, and there's 30, 40 kids on it. And, and uh, a couple of the kids on the block got chicken pox. And all the mothers were so happy. And they said, get your kids outside and play with our kids. We all stayed home from school just to play with those two kids. And it worked. We all got chicken pox really, really bad. And I do know people that don't get a really bad case of it can, can get it much worse at a different time. But we got a bad case. I remember those boils. And uh, they were miserable. But I think this was probably a lot worse than, than chicken pox. But all these boils were also on the animals. Have you, guys, have you guys been around sick animals in pain? Man, they can be loud. Horses, donkeys, sheep. Dogs, cats. Could you imagine hearing the animals <laughs> crying and screaming and, and howling in pain? And you're already in your own pain, and now you're annoyed with all of these animals suffering. Wow, weeping and gnashing of teeth, so to speak. And so God said to do this, and then notice in verse 10, they took the ash from the furnace, and, and they did exactly what God said. We see this over and over again. Why did they say this? Because I do think Moses and Aaron were still struggling. I, I don't think Moses was a dramatic guy, but God kept telling him to do these dramatic things. Get your rod and hold it up and go get some ash and wait, get up early in the morning and you and, you know, have this handful of ash. And Moses is standing there feeling like a, a dumb little kid. He's got all this black ash all over him and, and uh, I need to rub my nose and, uh, and 
And then they finally sees Pharaoh and he throws it up in the air in front of him. I don't think he necessarily wanted to do that. I can remember clearly as a kid in Sunday school, we hit right around 11 or 12 and we didn't want to do the motions anymore. Do you guys remember that? Okay, everybody stand up deep and wide. And we were just like, oh, no way, man. We're, you know. And I, I remember my heart being hard. I'm like, I shouldn't be this way, but I can't be the other way. I, I don't know what happened there. But then you, you get older and wiser and you realize, man, it's really important <laughs> to have the, the heart of a child and, and to do that. It's freeing, isn't it? Now, I, I grew up in a, in a church that if you showed emotion in worship, that was a sign of an immature Christian. So I, I remember, you know, some person came to our church and lifted their hands and they would talk to him afterwards going, hey, you know, can we disciple you? Can we help you? Obviously, you're not very mature because you lifted your hands. And, and I remember reading the Bible. And I was in college and I said, lift your hands, clap your hands, shout to the Lord of the voice of triumph. And I just remember going, no way. And at the time I was uh, going to uh, Horizon and, and the song said, lift your hands. And I wanted to, and everybody else was, but I just... I did, there was just this pride. And, um, and finally, I, God was just, oh, man, his hand was heavy on me in this. And, and I went to church, and that Sunday, I remember, lift your hands. And I did one of these here, you know, where I, I lifted it up a little bit. And, and God said, lift your hands. It's like, oh, lift. Oh, hands, plural. I'm like, oh, no. And I remember doing it. Everybody was doing it. Peer pressure was to do it, not to not do it. But that's just how prideful my heart was. And, and I really wanted God's will in my life, but it was still something dramatic that I had to get over. And, and I lifted it, and man, it was like scales fell from my heart. And I, I just remember just God saying that simple obedience and so then it was just as hard to clap my hands. <laughs> it was just as hard to shout to the Lord with the voice of triumph. And uh, but yet, you know, this, this is the, the will of the Lord, you know. And in particular, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says God's will is that men in particular would lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting. We'll lift up holy hands for wrath. You cut me off. No problem. I'll lift my hands up. But no, holy hands in, in prayer to God. It's an important aspect. I, I, I just want to say, I think Moses in particular was struggling with these things. And, and God gave them orders. And, and then each time he has to say, and, and they did it. There has to be this extra verse to say, they did it. But it seems like there was a wrestling match before each of these situations. Well, verse 11 and 12. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and on all the, all the Egyptians. And the, Lord, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. The first time, guys, earlier now God said, I will... In the future, in verse four, chapter 4, verse 21, and chapter 7, verse 3, he says, In the future, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But here now is the first time he actually does it. And he did not heed them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So 
the magicians couldn't come into the presence of Pharaoh and they couldn't do their job because you, you had to be pure. You couldn't be impure to do your job. So all of these thousands of temples were closed. <laughs> Nobody was worshiping their pagan gods because all the priests had these boils and were impure. And notice there in verse 12, and he, Pharaoh, did not heed them, the magicians. So the magicians earlier said, hey, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. We can't match this. Boy, you should wake up, Pharaoh. And now it seems like these guys are really pressing Pharaoh and saying to him, you better quit hardening your heart. This is serious stuff. There is a real God, and, and he is not happy with you. Now, do make note that six times before this, in chapter 7, verse 13, chapter 7, verse 22, chapter 8, verse 15, chapter 8, verse 19, chapter 8, verse 32, and chapter 9, verse 7, Pharaoh hardened his heart first. You guys want those verses again? Just listen to the YouTube. Um, It'll say it many times. Um, and so, really, and again, we looked at this when I looked at hardening his heart back in a, a few chapters ago, that there were several different words for God hardening his heart, but one of them, and the most, one that was used the most, was strengthening his heart. In other words, he's saying, if this is the position you want to take, I'm going to strengthen that position of that position that you're taking. And again, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses, so they did. Now, verse 13 to 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart. So there's a lot of stuff coming. I mean, don't, don't think I'm running out of things like, okay, yeah, God's running out of ideas. That's the fifth one. Even if he wanted to do more, I don't think he has more power than that. God is like, you don't understand. I, I can make this thing go on a long time. And he says, I got all my plagues I have to your very heart. Your hard heart, I can crush it. And your servants, and the heart of your servants, and on your people, that they may know that there is none like me in all the earth. And indeed, as we talked about this before, every country knows this story. People know this story. They know the flood story. They know the Adam and Eve story. They know the flood story. They know often the Tower of Babel. But they also know this story. This is a well-known, God's made it so. Years and years later in 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines said, oh my goodness, we're afraid. These are the children of Israel that came out of Egypt and God did all these amazing plagues. We can't fight against them. They were terrified because of the story. And God says, all the earth is gonna know because of this. So notice in verse 15 there, he said, now if, if, I stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off. We're going to find this term continuously. It means to be put to death from the earth. You would have been dead. If I wanted to, there would have been one plague. <laughs> but 
that wasn't my plan. And, and he, he quotes now in verse 16, a very popular verse found in, in Romans 9. But I just didn't, I didn't just have one plague and kill everybody off. That wasn't my plan. But indeed, for this purpose, I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So this was my plan, that your resistance would cause me to do one thing after the next, after the next, judging, bringing judgment on their gods, one God after the next, after the next. Now, verse 17, as yet you exalt yourself against my people and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy hell to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. So this is going to be a historical record-breaking thing. Now, you got to understand, in Egypt, they may have maybe one inch of rain a year, if that. So we're not talking about just rain. We're talking about hell. And so he's saying, no way. This is just sort of an unbelievable thing that God's saying he's going to do in the mind of the people. And so in verse 19, therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hill shall come down on every man and on every animal and found in the field and not brought home and they will die. So God, again, do you see how he's giving them direction to help them? So this is going to happen. And, and you know what? It really won't be that bad of one if you go get yourself in protection, but get all the animals you want to be protected. If they're in the field, this, this hell and this lightning, as we're going to find out, this fire from heaven, they will die. And notice in verse 20, some hope here, some glimmer of hope. He, or the people, who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Amazing that anybody could doubt the word of the Lord at this point. But note in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, there's going to be a mixed multitude of these people, of Egyptians with the Hebrews, and I guess other nationalities, that come with the children of Israel, and they bring their herds and their flocks uh, with them. Well, verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, and there will be hell in the land of Egypt on man and on beast and on every herb of the field, therefore the, of the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his rod towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hell and fire and darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hell on the land of Egypt. So Moses went out. He did it. I think he felt silly. I, I, I think he didn't. He wasn't this dramatist, you know. It's like, all right, I get a chance. Put me on the stage. Yes. Oh, I walk out, you know. Oh, get this. Hand it to me, you know, Aaron. Oh, here you go, Moses, you know, hmm, you know, wow, you know, I, I don't think he was into this. And so God makes a note that as silly and as childish and, and out of character as this was, he, he did it. And sure enough, verse 24, there was hell and fire mingled with it. I don't, I don't know if this is an electrical storm of some type. 
so very heavy that there was none like it in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hell struck throughout the whole land of Egypt and in the field, both man and beast. And hell struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hell. So this was a heavy, heavy thing. Just a little side note here. In Revelation 16 is sort of a mini version of the 10 plagues, okay? They're not in this order, and they're not all 10 there. But there are several of them, and it's, it's very picturesque. This is in the tribulation period. And God's bringing judgment on those in the tribulation period. But the reason I point this out is the very last plague is actually this one. The one with hell. And in, it ends up being the worst of the plagues. In the very last verse of Revelation 16, 21, it says, Great hell from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hell, since that plague was exceedingly great. So these, it was in the tribulation period, there's not one Pharaoh with a hard heart. It's everybody hates God, despises him, despises his judgment. And especially when this hell comes down, they just begin to blaspheme God. And, and they already had from earlier, we, we, re, we read in 1611, that they blasphemed God from heaven because of all the pains and their sores and the boils and so forth. But they did not repent of their deeds. Well, verse 27 to 35 here. And Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. My people and I are wicked. Have you ever heard of a better repentance prayer than this? He nails it, doesn't he? I've sinned. The Lord is righteous. Yahweh is righteous. And all the people, including myself, were wicked. God's righteous were wicked. Wow. Man alive. This is amazing. And then he says in verse 28, so entreat the Lord there. And, uh, there may be no more mighty thundering in hell, <laughs> for it is enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Have you guys ever been back south and really heard thunder? I mean, it seems like the whole house is going to crash in. And your whole stomach. And I, I just, I, 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 even when I knew it was coming as a kid, I lived back south for a while. It was just terrifying. Often it would be a sunny day in the summer. We'd get on our 10 speeds. We would ride four or five miles to the park. And then this black sky would come and we'd get torrential rain and hell and thunder. And it was just a terrible thing. So these people have never experienced it. And they're just like, please stop this stuff. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord. So Moses said, yeah, we'll do it, but it, it, you haven't changed. You haven't changed. Now the flack, that flack, you know, you see, that's good stuff, to, good healthy stuff. But flack also, um, the, the plant of it is how you make linen. So the flack and the barley were struck, and the barley was in the head, and the flack was in the bud, so it was ripe and ready to be used, but now useless. 
and the wheat and the split was not stuck for they were late crops. So they should have already been gathered and, and taken, but they weren't. They were still in the field. So Moses went out to the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. And then thunder and the hell ceased and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hell and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more. He hardened his heart and he he and his servants, not just him now, it's everybody. Everybody had a hard heart. And the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither could he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken to him. Man, what a beautiful prayer, but he didn't have a real repentance, did he? Pharaoh was grieved at the consequences of sin, but not at sin itself. Do you remember when David really repented? He said, Lord, against you, you only have I sinned. I think Uriah might have something different to say about that. And the other men with him that died and all their families, but he got it right. That as horrendous as the sin was against all those men that died to try to cover up his adulterous affair with Bathsheba, still he understood that the the, the sin of wronging God was greater than any sin that he had committed. But Pharaoh had no sense of sorrow or or, uh, repentance towards God. He just was sorry that he was suffering. He was sorry they lost their crops. He was sorry that everybody was scared to death. All his animals and cats and dogs and and all his kids were all freaking out. He just wanted everybody to, to, to not have to suffer anymore. But it wasn't a true repentance. God sees the heart. He knows it, right? He, he, he can tell. It's interesting that there's many people in the Bible that had these amazing moments of confession of sin and repentance. Yep, Pharaoh was the first, but then there was Balaam, but he didn't really repent, did he? Achan, he didn't really repent. Saul, he didn't really repent. And the last one, Judas. And we know he didn't come to repentance either. But yet there's a godly men who did do exactly the same words, same heart, it appears, from our point of view, but it wasn't. Job had a godly repentance. David had a repentance. Nehemiah had a great repentance for himself and all his people, even though he wasn't a part of it, he still repented nationally. And the prodigal son, was the last for us to see such a beautiful repentance. Why is there false repentance? Because of a hardness of heart. Also because their concerns are about the consequences of sin and not the sin itself. False repentance actually hardens the heart even further. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You guys remember in 1 Corinthians 5, the guy married his father's wife. And rather than the people feeling sorry and and guilty and and they're convicted, they were rejoicing. I think it's wonderful this guy married his stepmom. She was always too young for that old dad of his or whatever it was. They were rejoicing. And Paul says, you guys quit rejoicing about this. Repent. They finally did, and they excommunicated this guy because he wouldn't give up this relationship. 
But then Paul saw him, said, hey, we hear that he's repented, but you are not accepting him back. He said, he's not coming back. He hasn't asked us to receive him back. It doesn't matter. Go out and get him and bring him back to yourself. And so it seems that between him and the Corinthian church, for a time, Paul was the excommunicated one from his letter of 1 Corinthians. That they were mad at him for daring to be so legalistic and condemn this poor, wonderful man who, who did a wonderful thing, married his stepmom, and a stepmom and him, they have the most beautiful marriage, and blah, 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 blah. And, and Paul is the only one against it. Everybody else seems to be fine. I asked so-and-so teacher and so-and-so teacher, and they, they said it seemed fine to them. And Paul's the only, you know. And so there was a broken relationship for a time, and then finally they did come to repentance and Paul says there, and I don't have time to read it all, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8 through 12, but he said, you were made sorry, and your sorrow led to repentance. You were made sorry in a godly manner. And what godly sorrow produced repentance leading to salvation. Your sorrow was in a godly manner. What diligence it produced. What clearing of yourself. What indignation. That's anger. What fear, godly respect, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. And all these things you've proven yourself to be clear in this matter. And yet we know that they did not have the fear of the Lord and, and Pharaoh and those people's hearts who hardened their hearts against God. And it said plain out that he and the people hardened their hearts. And Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen says, how blessed is the person who fears always or has a reverent heart towards God, a respectful heart towards God always. But the one who hardens his heart will fall into disaster or into calamity. Well, as we end here tonight, we really want to ask ourselves: God, am I fully submitted? Or do I have a hardness of heart in some areas? You know, as I'm thinking on the last days and the prophecy update, you know, the Laodicean church that was lukewarm, they did not see it. When he said, you're naked, they're like, we've got the finest clothes money can buy. You're blind. I got perfect eyesight. They were indignant at Jesus saying that they had any problem. Well, you're lukewarm. I am not lukewarm. I am on fire for the Lord. And blah, blah, blah. They, they, they did not want to hear it. They were unwilling to hear it. And the Lord said, I say to you, be zealous and quickly repent. And that annoying knock is me. Open that door. Let me come back in. Whoa. They, Jesus wasn't ruling as the, on the throne of their hearts. And as I read these kind of things, I'm like going, God, is this me? Am I, am I the Laodicean? Because one of the signs of a Laodicean is they can't see it. <laughs> it's got to be a powerful work of your Holy Spirit to see. In the same way, we can sort of come to that place, Lord, is it me? In next chapter, chapter 10, verse 3, He's going to ask the question of how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. You know, in the plagues of our story, we're Pharaohs. You guys all know that, right? We're all Pharaohs. 
And in our story, the plagues fall on Jesus. All of the plagues, all of the judgments of God. You know, we say plagues, but really it's judgments. The judgments of God against all the gods of Egypt. God's judgment over our things that we've made as gods were judged on the cross. And all who believe have received that condemnation upon Christ and not upon ourselves. These verses from our Easter service on Sunday in Isaiah 53. Yet in the weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were punishment from God, a punishment for our own sins. And he was pierced for our rebellions, crushed for our sins. He was beaten for that we might become whole. He was whipped, leaving stripes so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all left God's path to follow our own heart, just like Pharaoh, right? Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Romans 4.25, he was handed over to die because of our sins. He was raised to life to make us right with him for us to be made justified, to be without sin in God's sight. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, to bring all the judgment of God upon him that we might become the righteous of God in him. And how we as believers need to confess our sins. Don't say, I have no sin. If you say, I have no sin, then God can't help you. But we need to confess our sins. Repent. He's faithful and just because of our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think that all of us need to have that prayer as David did in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Well, I just want to see if you guys have questions or there's something God's putting on your heart tonight that you want to share and also, I want to give a couple of minutes for Jim to, to share a little bit. I, you know, God really spoke through these last couple of Wednesdays through Jim Cimbala teaching. And then also through Brian Parrish, I listened to that sermon today, and I'm still pierced to the heart. It was such a word for us. It really was a word of the Lord. So just on the study tonight, is there anything jumping out that's on your heart that you wanted to share? I think there was. I mean, especially those who believed. Especially those who believed and later departed with Israel. I think it's very possible. I mean, it's all hypothetical. But I think that's how also the Egyptians got more animals. I think they just went over and either bought them from Israel or took them or, or whatever. Yeah. Those are speculations we have to... Well, Jim, share with us what you were talking. I mentioned to Jim today about that, and he said, I've been actually thinking about it all day and making some notes. And I'm like, man, share it with the people tonight. Yeah. 
Come on up here, Jim. Come on up here. There you go. I'm going to start the timer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> this is uh, years ago. I was in a college history class, and my professor said, and this was after we had had lunch, and so we were all sort of drowsy, and he said, "Drowsy," and he said, "Okay, now we are going to recapitulate." I said, "In public?" <laughs> Didn't know what the word meant. It just <laughs> simply means review. So. Uh, I, I took some cursory notes uh, when Pastor Parrish was here last week, and um, just to rehearse those with you as we begin to pray, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, uh, Pastor uh, shared with us, Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not been, uh, not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who has the least in the kingdom is greater than he. And then, verse 12, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence takes its force. It takes it by force. That really struck me. We pray, as the Lord directed us, um, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and so that is the precursor to the disciples' prayer, not the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer, but this, this uh, struggle that's going on between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the evil one. And as we look round about us today, it, it is becoming more and more apparent that that is escalating. I think we can all agree with that. So that was his first point, that uh, there is warfare going on, and it's against the kingdom of God. And as we look around, it looks like the kingdom of God is losing, particularly in the United States. So we're in a season of, uh, of violence, and, and what is our response to that? How do we pray? Secondly, in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, the Lord says, uh, Men ought always to pray and faint not. And the pastor's second point was, uh, do we have a sense of fear? in us, and we ought not to have that. The Lord's ex exhortation is, as you see this violence going on, don't be afraid. I am sovereign. I am in control. And you pointed that out very clearly with, with Pharaoh and God's sovereignty. He has a plan, and he's moving his plan ahead. So that was point number two. Um, point number uh, three was uh, in Genesis chapter 18, and that was where um, a lot was, had moved into Sodom and uh, Abraham was pleading on the part of the righteous people in Sodom. If there was just a few, if there was even less than that, would you save those people? Would you withhold your hand of, of judgment? Uh, judgment? And, and the Lord very graciously did that because there was a man that went before him to ask, and so his point would be, what would you do in that particular situation? And then finally, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 22, and let me read that for you. Uh, so I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. 
this is a glittering generality, but my sense is that God has lifted his hand of protection from this country because the believers have given lip service to prayer, but they don't come to pray because they don't feel it's effective. And as uh, James writes, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Do we believe that? Do we believe that today? So those were the points that he stressed last week. And I think as we come together to pray, we need to pray. And I'll let you lead us on this, what you want us to pray for. But my sense is that we should pray uh, out of uh, desperation, uh, covering what's going on, because God said, yeah. I will hear those. Second Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. And I will answer the prayer, and I will do what? Heal the land. Heal their land. We don't look at verse 13, where he says, When I bring pestilence to the land, hmm. then if my people. And we certainly see he brought pestilence to, yeah. uh, to the land of Egypt. So that's my quick review. And we got a bunch of pharaohs. <laughs> yes. We got a governor. We got a president. We uh, do. Yes. And it's, it's an evil time. They're all over the world, and, too. And so... I, my, I think my sense is that as we begin to pray, we pray on site with insight. And that is we pray, uh, and there's a, there's a certain decorum as we pray. Short prayers, stay on target, and let's not pray for our own uh, a laundry list of things. Let's pray overarching prayers that the Holy Spirit would come, would fall, would manifest himself. John uh, wrote in John chapter 14, if you the Lord was speaking, if you uh, fulfill my commandments, you follow my commandments, then the Father and I will manifest ourselves in your presence. Mm. And that's what we pray for now. Wow, that's a great verse, great verse. Ah, Lord, we come to you right now. Mm. Meet us here, Lord, gathered two and three in your name to pray. <laughs> you said if whatever we bind on earth, we bound in heaven, whatever we loose on earth would be loosed in heaven. Lord, that, that we are to speak to mountains, to be uprooted and cast into the sea. Boy, do we got mountains here in California of, of horrible wickedness. Good is evil and evil is good. That poor mother in Chico where the school system was turning her, her uh, child into the opposite sex and, and giving them pills and, and all kinds of stuff. And she had no knowledge of it. And the school was so prideful and happy and they were so righteous self-righteous about doing so wickedly and uh you know whether it's the stupidity of allowing street people to live everywhere until and and violence and crime increasing lord but yet as brian talked about last week we are not to be angry with the wicked world for being wicked um that you love them god you gave your life for them you died for them and all these transgendered people need you. They're victims of Satan, just like we all once were victims of Satan. When, when he used to take us and turn us as he wished, that prince of the power of the air, and now, Lord, we come and humble ourselves and say, God, help us to pray as a people. Lord, let us be on these Wednesday nights standing in the gap um, with a heart of love and faith. 